over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So people have short memories, they forget. These companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. In the first 100 days, do you really see, do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by PEI Group in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. This season, we're exploring how GPs and operating partners can best prepare for massive disruption at each point in the deal cycle. And today, we're looking at the best practices in delivering top-line growth, even in unpredictable market conditions. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Kotecki. Chase, are you getting taller? Sorry, what now? I could swear you got taller since our last episode. That would be completely out of character for me. Well, if nothing else, it would certainly be... Against the odds. Hmm. Growth against the odds. That is an interesting concept. It is something that's on the minds of investors and owners these days. The odds certainly do seem to be tilted against investors more than ever lately. There are so many disruptors in the market today. But I guess the first step to understanding how to grow against the odds is to know exactly what you're up against. The fact is many of the companies across industries really have been on the defensive and they were unprepared, I think, for the current market conditions. There's Jason McDonald, partner and managing director in the private equity practice at Alex Partners. And to be fair, you know, there's no doubt we're in this period of unprecedented disruption. There are just a lot of variables coming into play, more so than than the past several uh, downturns. For example, you've got macroeconomic uncertainty. We have a rapidly changing competitive landscape enabled by this rapid inclusion of digital and new AI solutions. Customer demand has been capricious, has been unpredictable. Free money's dried up. And so a lot of struggling companies are faced with dealing with some of these crises on their own. They're unable to raise more capital. And so you know, a lot of companies have been coming to us the last few years, actually, struggling. And their first reaction is to cut costs. A lot of the portcos especially are saying, look, we're left with bloated GNA functions. Back office is heavy. Revenues are down. EBITDA is under pressure. we got to cut costs. And, and what we've also seen, though, is that more and more of these companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. And so the winning companies are pivoting and saying, okay, what if we focus inward and address commercial effectiveness? What are some tactical, meaningful measures we could take in the short term to drive stabilization of the revenue and maybe even some top line growth? He notes that one way to deliver growth under pressure is to focus on commercial effectiveness. How we're seeing companies becoming more offensive and driving growth is they're focusing a lot more on operational effectiveness on the commercial side. So they're taking this chance to invest in better capabilities, getting better visibility into what is exactly happening to an increasingly remote sales team. How engaged are their sales force? How productive are they? What's the MROI of campaigns, marketing campaigns? And investing in revenue win rooms, which is sort of this cross-collaborative effort to sort of cooperate and work with sales, finance, marketing to drive growth month on month, quarter on quarter, and really investing in, in the right tools to drive that. And so we're seeing companies taking these tactical steps more so than maybe long-term strategic steps. And ultimately, the key focus is maybe hopefully alleviating some of that pressure on EBITDA. And so a lot of our clients who've come to us who are saying, look, cut costs, we got to save EBITDA. 
they're realizing that you could alleviate a significant amount of pressure if you get a little bit of an uptick in top line. And so they're pushing for that, especially as this disruptive environment continues on. You're seeing more of that kind of investment, more in sort of a directed approach to address these concerns on the top line. I'll say additionally, I think not only in a disruptive market, I would contend that it can be done, it should be done. I think this is the time, it's a prime opportunity for companies to invest in these capabilities, even in sort of a difficult time, really to gain an edge, especially as the competition is struggling. Uh, Really now is the time more than ever to kind of push forward for that. Something he said there really resonated with me, that precise tactical moves can be the most effective approach. And I love that because a lot of the time it can feel like the magic of private markets investing is this complex and elaborate chess match, you know, this like long form deep strategy. So true. It's the butterfly effect in action. Are you talking about the Ashton Kutcher movie? No, no. no. I think I'll take Jason's advice and pivot away from that. There's so much power in the pivot, right? But in these uncertain times, how can portfolio managers and leadership teams feel secure enough to pursue an offensive strategy when others are going on defense? Richard Liu, a partner in the enterprise technology and services arm of FTV Capital, says that while the market conditions aren't exactly ideal, that does present an opportunity to differentiate. I think the silver lining is there's a bit more of an even playing field today versus like 2021 when there was just an enormous amount of money being pumped into companies and Everyone was kind of spending incredible amounts in sales and marketing. It was hard to differentiate. And I think in this environment, it's more to like the best operators and operating excellence. And so you see companies that have that pulling forward. The second thing is really there's a lot of fat build up. And we see this a ton, especially just in the growth category over the last, you know, 18 to 24 months and even before that, where, you know, Tom was pumped into sales and marketing into GNA and even trimming some of that, being more efficient, can unlock capital and dollars to invest in other parts of the business. For example, like going into customer retention, it's a big thing we are focused in our portfolio, but even doing that and trimming parts of the business allows you to redirect the resources to other parts of the business you can see more ROI from. Ben Russell, Senior Vice President of Private Equity of Partners Group, echoes that sense of optimism. Right. And he provided a great example of a business his team is backing that's benefited from a proactive approach to growth. There's a quote from a famous F1 driver who said, you know, you cannot overtake 15 cars in sunny weather, but, you know, you can do so when it's raining. And, you know, I think we take a lot of that mentality that, look, when all boats are rising, we expect our companies to take their fair share of market. But it's in these more volatile times that, you know, we back great businesses and great teams that we expect will outperform when things are shaky or volatile. And, you know, we've got like an industrial manufacturing business based both in Europe and here in the Americas, and they've invested pretty heavily the last several years. And they've borne the the fruit from that. You know, we grew at about 17% this past year and a lot of their market, you know, peers on the public side, you know, we're growing at kind of a low single digit. And we did that, you know, we invested in a new CapEx facility. We made a large acquisition here in, in the US. And so I think these are times where you can take advantage of that. Now you've got to have the right platform, the right team, the right perspectives from your customer that they're willing to work with you in these times and that you can convince employees to to stick with you when they've got a lot of options and pressure is on labor and whatnot. But I do think it comes a lot to backing the right platform with the right model and, and the right team and can really you know win in these markets. One of the keys to understanding how to grow is understanding the full breadth of factors that can both help and hinder your growth plans. Jeremy Shine, a partner and member of the Buyouts Investment Committee at Corsair Capital, says it's important not to let volatility or market shift paralyze you. I don't really 
remember a period where it didn't seem scary, right? When things looked good, it's scary because you think that might end. And when things look bad, it's scary because what does the other guy know? So that all goes to making sure you have the right team around you who can generate the conversation that is going to, again, get you to that right decision so that you're not as afraid of making it. So not having people that just agree with you on your management team, not having people that just agree with the private equity fund, you know, really getting diverse voices to the table that are coming from different perspectives can really help you in these environments make decisions for growth and not just defensively trying to burrow your head in the sand and hope for a sunnier day. Britt Young, an operating partner at Corsair Capital, reminds us that of the many diverse voices that are necessary to allow for holistic decision-making, the voice of the customer is one that cannot be forgotten or ignored. From where we sit, a lot of the encouragement is around, let's listen to our customers more than we're listening to macroeconomic wisdom. There's a lot of really smart people that have takes on the economy and the Fed and and I don't want to disparage any of that. They spend a lot of time trying to predict the future. But you know, we live in a very like complex global economy. So paring down our forecasting to what are our customers saying? What are we hearing from them? I think results in a much more action-oriented outcome from that conversation. It's far less anxiety-inducing, and it really gets you to the opportunity rather than just saying to the portfolio, like, there's clouds ahead. You know, be careful. Having that customer obsession really does help bring a, a tactical, action-oriented mood to the conversation. You know, Chase, you don't hear anyone saying the customer is always right anymore. Of course not, because in 2023, it's the employee who's always right, right? Anyway, that's what I tell my boss. But one thing you will hear is that it's easier to keep existing customers than it is to acquire new ones. Here's Richard Liu again. The reality is there's no easier way to kill growth than to have high customer churn. It's just hard to grow through that. And so, you know, we're doing tactical things around customer segmentation, understanding, you know, it could be a certain size of customer or vertical public versus private. It could be different in terms of retention or their propensity to pay for a product. We're thinking about ways to improve pricing, just given like the cost of inflation and also just bear hugging the customers uh, a lot more closely. Jason McDonald shared his thoughts on one of the toughest challenges for portfolio companies at the moment. We're seeing a lot of portcos are challenged with customer acquisition right now. They view it as a little bit of a risky bet in investing in new markets or expanding into new verticals. Could be B2B or B2C. And many of them are, in fact, turning inward to protect the base and extract more value from the existing customer. And, you know, we're seeing this as a good tactical lever that a lot of companies are deploying, which is how do we go to our existing customer base and programmatically improve loyalty, reduce churn, improve our net promoter scores, which is a measure of loyalty, improve our customer satisfaction scores, maybe even do some upselling and cross-selling. And we're seeing a lot of companies forming new customer success organizations, customer success defined as a group that isn't necessarily looking for new customers. They're not hunters, they're more farmers and driving loyalty and expanding value to those customers. McDonald gave us a great example about the power of this more agricultural approach to the customer base that he's talking about. You know, we had a client as a Silicon Valley based technology company, $2 billion company. And of course, initially they asked us to get some cost out. EBITDA was under pressure. They had declining revenue. And so we did. We identified $450 million in cost out. And in the end, that was realized. And that was a really good success story. But 
Along the way, as we're identifying cost out opportunities and driving efficiencies in the business, we also identified a really good tactical way to drive revenue up in the meantime. And what we saw was that they had about a 75% renewal rate on average. So they're hemorrhaging customers, 25%, year on year, just dropping them. And they really had no visibility into what the key drivers were for churn. Uh, they didn't really have any people really devoted to driving loyalty up. And so we put in place a program that really focused on proactive reach outs well before you know, SaaS agreements and service agreements would expire, proactively reaching out to customers, building those relationships, driving up loyalty, offering expanded points of value, additional services, additional products, perhaps at discounts to especially, and most importantly, to key segments. And so one of the key factors here is effectively segmenting your customers so that you understand your cost acquire versus customer lifetime value. Is my cost acquire this customer worth it versus the actual lifetime value of that customer? And so when you deploy these models and drive this out, within a year, we improved renewal rates by 10%, got up to 85%. Now, what's interesting is each percentage point is $10 million. So that was a $100 million top line impact in 12 months. That continued to go up there at 92% renewal rates now and a very good tactical, achievable, and measurable impact on really focusing in on customer value and being smart about which customers you service and, and you're more proactive with. Of course, one thing that can't be left unsaid is that customers aren't gonna be happy about paying more and they're not gonna be excited about sticking around unless you're either improving your products and services, improving their experience, or both. Here's Russell again. I know you talked about protecting the base and look, I think that is critical in today's market and any market, but you know, customers are always expecting more as well. Right. And so you can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect your customers to stick with you. We've owned a uh, real estate services on the residential side platform over in Europe for several years now. And this is an industry that is notoriously low from an NPS perspective. NPS here means net promoter score. Uh, these aren't people that you call up to thank them for getting around to mowing your lawn or fixing your faucet. This is you call to complain. And so, you know, what we realized is that we've got to take a lot of the friction out of the customer engagement. We've got to provide a much better experience in transparency to the customer, you know, when they've got an order out there. And when we invested in this business, it was frankly very much done with pen and paper and very antiquated, you know, models in place that did not allow the customers to have the, the visibility or the transparency that they expect in today's environment when you can do everything and you can see your, you know, how far away your pizza is a few minutes after you order it. We went through a major endeavor, um, you know, hired 80 developers, put them up on the Chandelier in a very Silicon Valley like environment, ping pong table and all, and got them to, you know, redo the entire CRM and ERP system so that we could have better customer engagement. And look, it drove several hundred basis points of margin improvement. One, because it just created a lot more efficient systems. But two, customer engagement, customer retention, NPS scores, everything went up along with it. So part of listening to the customer base then is about making sure you have the infrastructure for them to be heard in the first place. One great place to start if you want to know what your customers and your desired customers are saying is inside your own organization. Who has more exposure to your customers than your sales team? One of the things we've learned is that our salespeople, they get told no a lot. And they remember why they got told no. And people say no for truthful reasons and sometimes not truthful reasons, but it is data. And if you just kind of ask them, like, why are people not buying? What are the objections they're giving you? 
that's a real interesting data source. Uh, and it doesn't really get captured necessarily in a CRM. It doesn't necessarily get captured in a sales meeting. You know, salespeople are, are thinking about the next thing, the next win, pushing things along, and not always thinking about all the objections they're hearing, unless they're hearing objections a lot. So I think it's, it's a bit of a tactical trick, but I, I think it is helpful to bring voice and waiting to those who do have the most time with our customers. Okay. So if salespeople aren't necessarily geared toward cataloging and capturing data around objections from their customers, then how can management teams make sure it's not lost to the ether? Jeremy Shine says having the right goals in place is one way to achieve that. Make sure that you have the right incentives in place across all functions to get to your desired outcomes. And a lot of incentives and spiffs and everything else got set up in a pretty different world. You know, we're living in a world now where we see sort of across companies we're looking at. And when we talk to people, sales cycles take a lot longer. So, you know, how do you incentivize speed? How do you incentivize cross-sell? How do you incentivize upsell? Who's getting those incentives? That's really, really important. It's always important in every market, but particularly now. And of course, where people struggle, technology flourishes. Here's Jason McDonald. AI is being deployed in a very meaningful and practical way to give these insights into the customers, understanding propensity to churn, understanding customer sentiment through recording all the phone calls and the email interactions, etc. But in the world of customer relationships, it's important not to rely too heavily on technology, or you might risk losing a critical touchpoint. We're seeing a lot of companies investing in digital or AI solutions to sort of gain some efficiency on customer support and customer service. And in fact, they're losing intimacy as well. If they're not careful, they're losing some of that important customer touchpoint. Britt mentioned how a lot of folks who deal with customers have those unique perspectives. And so interesting trend where you're having this emphasis on cost efficiency, but the real value is driving experience, differentiating the company by providing a better service, a better, uh, more intimate experience and driving up loyalty. And so there's this interesting balance right now, this between the digital efficiencies versus quality interactions with the company. That's sort of a watch out that we're seeing a lot of companies falling prey to. One of our clients said, uh, Dial one for rage <laughs> because they're saying the customers are yelling at the bots and you know they're not happy at all with some of the digital solutions they had put in place. That reminds me of our conversations around digital transformation from the first season of the show. That's right. Digital transformation can be a great value creation lever, but it needs to be done with purpose in mind, not simply because it's in vogue to revamp. So Obviously, technology can add cost efficiencies into the sales and marketing side of the business, but those efficiencies come at their own cost. Ben Russell offers an example from one of his firm's businesses, a luxury consumer products company. They've been using AI and generative AI quite successfully, I think, in copyright creation, in kind of some target marketing, and really getting the story out there and the word out there about the brand, and I think leveraging that well. But at the end of the day, you know, we still have only kind of single percentage points being sold of this product online. And so it needs to be in-person sale and get that engagement with the salesperson and the experience of being in the retail location. And so that you can't create with AI. And you've got to make sure that all of the sales team and, you know, the retail workers understand what's the story we're selling here? What's the culture that we want this individual to be part of and convince them that this purchase price is worth the product because you're not just getting the product, but you're getting 
to be part of, you know, the lifestyle and the culture. And that, you know, is really hard to teach with tech. So we've got to find a good way to balance to, you know, drive customers in with, you know, successful use of technology, but then still have that, you know, real kind of in-person capability and, and understanding to ultimately sell the product. So there's something we were talking about earlier that I'd like to circle back to, pricing. It's a sensitive issue, especially in these inflationary times. Russell gives an example of the difficulties investors are facing in this regard. We've got a HVAC services business that has a portion of project-based as well as a portion of service-based work. And I think we always, you know, going into it, we thought that the project-based work is great. It's the steady eddy. It's the, you know, consistent longer-term contracts. We can continue to make money on those and kind of keep people working at longer periods of time. What I don't think we, we took into account, I don't know if anyone did until what we saw the last, you know, several months of the massive increase in interest rates is just how quickly pricing moved. And so the increase in labor wages to the increase in input costs, all of a sudden, some of these, you know, medium to longer-term contracts were unprofitable. And we had mechanisms to adjust for CPI and whatnot, but nothing could happen quick enough to justify, you know, what we were having to pay to produce the work with the labor and the input costs. And so I think we're taking a view, you know, somewhat revised now in a lot of our underwriting as we look at new opportunities is where's that balance of ability to pass through costs? How long can it take to pass through those costs, even if in theory you can do so for the contract? Because you could be caught in a short-term period where you're underwater. And so I think that's definitely a learning, you know, from this environment. Jason McDonald says there are quite a few tactical levers that companies are deploying to stay ahead of the curve and minimize the damage. We were working with one of the top online training providers who had just a precipitous drop in revenue, obviously, during the pandemic. And after the pandemic, companies are investing less in training. And they had asked for a dramatic cost out effort. But while we were looking through the operations, we found that on the pricing side, they had real pricing compliance issues. So this is sort of outside the realm of maybe just increasing pricing, but is your sales force, you know, are they all complying with pricing that they should be having? And are they doing it an intelligent way? Are the customers segmented so that you're pricing, maybe you're giving discounts to the wrong customers altogether, which they were. And you know, we were able to drive up top line by 20 million in 90 days, just in 90 days, just by putting in place better governance of the sales team. And it's a good lesson where there are a lot of maybe lower hanging fruit, tactical levers, leakage reduction, you know, discount reduction, pricing compliance efforts, segmentation and price tiering, and being nimble with that as you go along and, and as the market changes conditions. There doesn't seem to be any shortage of examples where pricing effectiveness hasn't paid off in spades. Here's Richard Liu with a couple more. You know, we're seeing pricing as actually a really good lever for growth in this environment and to drive like the next net expansion. And I kind of view it in two buckets. I think in one bucket, we have companies primarily like more in our software or like deeply integrated, like tech enabled services where gross retention might be in the 90s or high 90s. And we're finding a bit more pricing power, right? Just given the level of stickiness of that product. And then some other companies, maybe more transaction based, you have to be more careful because you can lift pricing, but eventually you might get slapped on the wrist just because it's a, you know, maybe a service or product easier to remove or, you know, there's more competition. So we have to be mindful of how to do that. And I think there's a lot of tactical things we're trying to think through in the portfolio to drive that, whether it's, you know, things in the contract to try to unlock, whether it's things around just even sales enablement of the team. You know, you find that when you start to change a comp plan or 
you have more rigor around it, pricing and margin can magically go up. We have one business in security that, you know, we did a customer segmentation and it seems intuitive, but, you know, selling more products and multi-product and getting kind of the expand in certain segments, obviously we're driving the, the pricing ASPs up, but that was a lever that had not been utilized as much in previous years, just because we we're so focused on new logo acquisition. And when we turned the dials on existing, we were able to drive more ARR from the base. You know, Chase, a lot of what we're talking about today, focusing on the customer, listening to the sales team, being sensitive to the sentiments that rise out of the various subcategories of these groups, these activities become all the more important when it's time to exit an investment. That's especially true when there are so many disruptors eroding value from portfolio companies today. And that's why we've dedicated our fifth episode of this season to a conversation about how investors can successfully exit their portfolio companies. To be the first to hear that episode, be sure to subscribe to Spotlight wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chase Collum. And I'm Rob Kutecki. Goodbye for now. <laughs>